This episode of the Ready Room is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for iPhone, iPad, and iPod, Android, Kindle, Windows Phone, plus Mac or PC. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com/trekfm. This is JG Hertz, the General Mar Talker on Deep Space Nine, and you're listening to Trek FM. Welcome to the Ready Room, show number 143, Hand-Rolled Sushi Furnace. I'm Christopher Jones, and with me this week is Daniel Handlin. We'll be talking about some Star Trek news, including five-year missions, Las Vegas adventure, breakthroughs in tractor beam technology, and we look back at the search for Spock on the film's 30th anniversary. Then in the feature, we're joined by Drew Stewart and Suzanne Abbott to discuss the classic TOS episode, The Doomsday Machine. So let's step into the ready room. Hello, Daniel. Welcome to the Ready Room. This is not only your first podcast here on the network, but it's your first time hosting news with me on the Ready Room as well. Obviously, I'm throwing you right into the fire, right into the glowing furnace of the Doomsday Machine. Yeah, Chris, it's uh, great to be here. I'm excited to talk about Star Trek with you guys. And uh, yeah, as we'll be discussing later, uh, like you said, just going right into that angry, gaping maw. So hopefully I'll... uh, come out better than Commodore Decker did. I hope so. Well, Daniel, today we're going to talk about the original series. And, you know, one of those things from the original series that one of the visuals that really stands out to people and has, in fact, been used in many other TV shows and movies because of Star Trek is Vasquez Rocks. And most of us, we we can only see it on TV, but you actually live so close to them that you can run out there and reenact your favorite scenes anytime you want, can't you? Yeah, so I actually I moved out here to the California desert north of Los Angeles about a year ago, and as I was driving up to my apartment, I passed by these rocks. I was like, hmm, those look awfully familiar. And indeed, they were the Vasquez rocks, so I have gone out there a few times and, and been the, the Gorn and Kirk engaged in mortal battle, although the thing that doesn't come across there is it's like really, really hot. It's probably about 110 degrees yeah. there on a good summer day, and uh, actually at a, it was ironic at a uh, the last year's Las Vegas convention, uh, Terry Farrell, who's Dax, was talking about, uh, you know, someone had asked her something like, what was the worst experience you ever had on Star Trek? And she's like, well, there are these awful rocks near Palmdale, which is where I live, <laughs> called Vasquez Rocks. But uh, it is neat to get to, sometimes when I drive by it on the highway, I do the, the live long and prosper sign at them as they, as oh, they drive you? by. Yeah, just seems I can just picture you out there by yourself. You know, building building a weapon, ripping your own shirt just for fun, rolling around in the dirt. <laughs> yeah, problem is that there aren't as many diamonds out there as there were in the episode in Arena. It's it, yeah, which is unfortunate for a variety of reasons, but it makes it hard to build the cannon. And then the lizards out there are smaller than the Gorn, right? And generally, they are, and they 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 don't talk as much. So, yeah, it's uh, but but their movements are not as stiff either. Yeah, they are they are a little bit more uh, nimble than the, the Gorn is, but they're Very probably true. less clever and they don't throw gigantic boulders at you either. So uh, all in all, I think I come out ahead. Thank goodness. 
Well, let's jump into news here. And our first story is keeping in line with original series themes. We're recording the show on June 1st for you guys there in the U.S. And June 1st marks the 30th anniversary of the premiere of The Search for Spock. It premiered June 1st, 1984. I remember going to the theater to watch it myself. And it's hard to believe that it's been 30 years. Do you have any memories of of seeing Search for Spock for the first time? Uh, yeah, so the first time I saw The Search for Spock, it was, I, I had finally got, so I, I grew up watching the original series before the movies, so it was for me like, finally I got around to seeing the movies sometime later. And to me, it, I guess I was probably about 10, and it just seemed like the logical step you had to do between 2 and 4. Um, I don't think, and I think most people would agree, it's not as good as either, but it just sort of flowed naturally for me as the, you know, the middle part of that three-movie arc, and I don't think it's executed as well as maybe it could be, but it it kind of has to be there. And that's kind of how I saw it at the time. It's part of this bigger whole. And the one thing that did always stand out to me is, um, despite maybe the movie not being the best of all the Star Trek films, just seeing the original Enterprise go down in flames is uh, yeah. it's uh, heart-wrenching every time I watch it, even now. It's such a memorable scene. And I especially like that scene because it was done for a specific reason. It was a last resort for Kirk. And the Enterprise really was Kirk's love. And it's like sacrificing a loved one or, or, you know, another character in a story for him, not just a ship. So it didn't feel hollow like when the Enterprise D was destroyed in Generations, which really did feel like we're going to do this because it'll look cool and we want to make a new ship for the next movie. This was like the last thing Kirk wanted to do. It was the only way out. And then when he's down the, on the planet and he tells Bones, you know, my, my God Bones, what have I done? And Bones says, what you had to do, what you always do. You turned death into a fighting chance to live. It's one of my favorite moments in all of Star Trek. Yeah, you, you took the words right out of my mouth. I, that, that line is, is one of my favorites too. And I, and I was going to compare it to how much better executed it was than the the Enterprise D, uh, the end of that yeah. ship. So, yeah, I think uh, I think we're in concert on that. The Enterprise D was exciting, was much more exciting, but this was much more touching. With yeah. The Search for Spock, for me, it's actually one of my favorite Star Trek movies. I like yeah. middle stories, and I like the fact that when you do a story like The Search for Spock, as with The Empire Strikes Back in Star Wars, <laughs> it's so much about the characters because they're 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 in they're in transit within the overall story and the focus here very much is on the characters themselves and search for spock of course being kirk's concern for his friend spock and the the links that he will go to to help his friend and and just throw his whole career away essentially to to help yeah. someone and even bones going along with it after all the jabbing, you know, between Bones and Spock over the course of Star Trek up to that point, uh, I yeah, like these yeah. elements. Yeah, no, I mean, don't, don't get me wrong. I, th- I think it is you know, c- certainly good Star Trek. And for me, I can't watch two without immediately watching three, and I can't watch three mm-hmm. without immediately watching four. So I think they just all form one one larger story. Um, and yeah. you, you can't tell, I think, any part of that without the other one. So it's, it's definitely a key part of Star Trek history, and it uh, does have its moments. 
which is great because it wasn't envisioned as that originally. It wasn't meant to be a trilogy, but it, it does come right. together. It just, I it think seems I'm with so you. Natural. Yeah, yeah, it does feel natural. Yeah. I think I'm with you with, I have to, after two, I have to go to three. I have to see it. Yeah. From three to four, not necessarily. Four for me is very much another movie altogether mm-hmm. just because the tone is so different. And I love that it does tie back in at the beginning. Yeah. And we do follow Spock's journey of trying to reacclimate himself. Yeah. And I guess for me, it, maybe it's just because at the end, I think at the end of three, it just says to be continued in big letters, if I remember correctly. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, right after this big emotional moment where Spock finally comes back. So it's hard not to you know, go right to that, to that next one. But yeah. it is true. Four does have sort of a different tone or, or style than two and three, certainly. Right. Well, I, like I said, I have great memories though of, of the movie. And I used to go, I, I guess it started with the Wrath of Khan, but I went with my grandmother to see every Star Trek movie up until, I don't think we saw The Undiscovered Country. I think it was two through five we, we saw together. And then The Undiscovered Country, I was in university. I think I was a sophomore maybe when that came out. And at that point, we weren't doing that anymore. But The Search for Spock reminds me of, of those family activities as well. Yeah, we have um, the all the original series movies on Laserdisc, actually, which was how I first discovered oh, yeah. them when I was much younger. I had a few younger. of them on there, yeah. Yeah, those yeah. were great because you'd have like three of these gigantic discs and you'd have to have like both sides of each disc. Yeah. Every 20 or 30 minutes, you'd have to flip the disc or change the right. disc. That's, uh, that's how I originally watched them. And it's a lot easier now. Uh, it's almost kind of frustrating how easy it is to get Star Trek now because it used to be like you really had to work for it. You had to get the Laserdisc, you had to copy the, the recordings on TV. A lot easier now. You know, the I, I had laser discs also, and it was it was funny, right? What we would go through for pristine yeah. picture quality because this was oh, before yeah. DVDs, and we were willing halfway through a movie, or more frequently, as you said, with early ones, to flip it over, stop yeah. and flip it over. And then they had the ones that could play both sides, but I had a single-sided player, so I had to flip mine over. If you go to Tower Records in Shibuya here in Tokyo right now, they're actually, we do still have some Tower Records here. The It's the largest one in the world, and they have a floor of Laserdiscs still. Really? And you can go browse through and you can find those discs because there are collectors who still do prefer those for maybe for nostalgia purposes or uh, something about the image they just like, and they're still there. Yeah, I've read that same way. Like, I think there's still some people who there's like something they like about records versus CDs yeah, and so forth. Right. And, you know, one one of my favorite things when I was growing up, this was like four or five, is I'm probably the only person in the universe who can say this. That I would go with my dad to a video store near us, and we would rent laser discs of the animated series. Which oh, really? Wow. Existed, yeah. And uh, that was <laughs> that. That was what you had to go through back then to get your fix of Star Trek. So definitely. Easy okay, so interesting point here. We were talking a couple of days ago, and I believe you told me right that your introduction to Star Trek was through the animated series. It was, yeah. When I was about three years old, uh, my dad gave me a, a Betamax tape of of the of the animated series, and that was how I got into it. And uh, when I got a little older, he. Uh, also had a beta tape of actual original series episodes, and I just thought of it as slightly longer versions of Star Trek, which was to me at the time was the animated series. So yeah. I'm probably the only person anywhere who got their introduction to Star Trek that way. 
And you were like, um, then, "Where's Mares? Where's Arex?" Yeah, I, I especially missed mixed Arex. He was he was really cool. Um, and it was weird that all the voices of the aliens no longer sounded like James Doohan and Michelle Nichols. <laughs> um, he did a good I job, think, though. He did, but I, I have found when I rewatched it more recently, it's like kind of really obvious and you almost can annoying more, yeah. way. Yeah, because you just get used to it. But yeah, he did a great job. And yeah, later was when I discovered TNG and DS9 and all that. But yeah, he does an excellent series. Scotty, by the way, on the animated series. He's really spot on. It's it's amazing how close he gets it to, to Scotty. <laughs> really is. So yeah, thirty years of the search for Spock. Hard to believe. Uh, that was of course yeah. Leonard Nimoy's debut as a feature mm-hmm. director, and he went on within Star Trek to direct Star Trek Four, and t- two of my favorite films from a directorial standpoint as well. And he went on to direct other films all the way through the mid nineties. Um, the the one that comes to mind, I think, for most people is probably Three Men and a Baby, which he did in 87 because it was mm. soon after he had done the two Star Trek movies. But he, he also did The Good Mother in 88, Funny About Love in 1990, Holy Matrimony in 94, and an episode of Deadly Games called Kill Shot in 95. So, so The Search for Spock is what really kicked off Leonard Nimoy's directing career, uh, certainly in films. He had done a little bit of television before that. And... When I think of Leonard Nimoy, I think not only of Spock, but I do think of him as a director and then more recently as a photographer as well because of what he's done post-Star Trek. And this really started here. Yeah, I kind of think of him, I guess, more as a photographer because of all that work he's been doing more recently. Yeah. But uh, you know, he did, did direct quite a few movies. And uh, I think Star Trek Four is almost universally loved uh, by all Star Trek fans. So definitely a well-directed film. Yeah, uh, definitely. So Star Trek III, uh, final notes on it. In terms of box office, it premiered at number one, which is great for a Star Trek film, especially back in the 80s, and grossed just under $16.7 million on opening weekend, $76.5 million domestically uh, by the end of its run. It didn't do quite as well as the Wrath of Khan, but it hung up there. It was only about $2.5 million less. And if you adjust those numbers for inflation... You know, these movies did, did quite well, obviously, because they continue to make them. Yeah, no, it's definitely an enjoyable film. And it's the kind of thing like, I mean, not that I uh, get money in my movies on TV anymore, but metaphorically, if it's on TV, it's, uh, you know, something that I would watch. And, right. Um, they, yeah, it's, 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 it's uh, you know, just something you can't really, can't really miss once it, once it gets started, because it does just flow as part of that bigger story. Why do we do that? I mean, most of us as Star Trek fans, we definitely have these films on DVD. A lot of us have them on multiple versions of VHS, DVD, Blu-ray. But if it's on TV, you're going to stop and watch it while it's on TV. You you can't do anything else. I don't know why that is. It's some kind of psychological (laughs) thing, but it definitely seems like we all do it. We really do. So celebrate. Go watch The Search for Spock today. Celebrate 30 years of this film and then be like Daniel and go straight into the voyage home as well. All right, Daniel, let's move on to the next story here. And this is about five-year mission. I was so excited this week when creation entertainment announced and then five-year mission announced that they are the official house band for Star Trek Las Vegas this summer. And in fact, this is going to be the first time for STLV to have an official house band, as I understand it from creation. And I've been saying for the past three years, 
that creation needs to get on the phone with five-year mission and get them over there and have them play at the convention because it was a little bit puzzling to me why this wasn't being done already. Finally, it's happened. Yeah, Chris, I'm I'm really excited about it. I'm going to be uh, definitely going to the Las Vegas convention this year since it's just a few hours drive for me. And yeah, I'd, I'd love to see a five-year mission in person and having a band do songs for every single original series episode is, is an amazingly excellent idea. Um, the first time I, I discovered them, it was their song for uh, This Side of Paradise. Mm-hmm. And I'd sent it to my sister, who's also a Star Trek fan, not quite as as fanatical as I am, but she she was like kind of in amazement that someone would have produced such a song. So uh, yeah, I'll, I'll definitely be uh, really excited to, to see them and see what they'll have to offer. Now, I hope that every time that you drive by Vasquez Rocks, you actually have their song for Arena playing, blasting away on your radio. Uh, yeah, I never thought of that. It's definitely uh, something I should do. So I, I, will, uh, I will do that in future times I drive by it. So if you don't know Five Year Mission yet, if you're listening to this and you don't know them, they are banned from Indianapolis. Five guys, Noah Butler, Andy Fark, Patrick O'Connor, Mike Rittenhouse, and Chris Spurgeon. We've had them here on the show many times. Uh, leading into each album, we actually preview the tracks here on the show for um, starting, I don't know, usually like two months or so before the release of the album. And then, then they come on, they do live acoustic sets to kick off the album. It's really great fun. They've released three albums so far and an EP, Year One in 2010, Year Two in 2011, Year Three in 2013, and then in between Year Two and Year Three there in 2012, they did the Tribbles EP where they each wrote their own version of a song about the trouble with Tribbles. And they play at conventions regularly around the Midwest because, as I said, they're from Indianapolis. In 2012, they opened up for William Shatner in New Orleans. That was a really big thing. And I just love the diversity of the music. They're all veterans of the music scene in Indianapolis. They all have their own styles, their own inspirations for the music. And since they all write songs, you get this really eclectic mix of tracks on the albums. That's one of the things I think is uh, is interesting about them, that they all ha- they have such dramatically different styles between the songs. And for that reason, like some of them, I really don't like, and some I think are f- absolutely fantastic. So it varies a lot just because the songs are so completely different in, in styling. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, overall, uh, I definitely in- enjoy most of their songs, and some of them are, are really spectacular. It's funny to see the take on the episode, right? Like there yeah. are episodes where you're thinking, oh, I know exactly what I would do if I were going to write a song about this. And then there are episodes where you're thinking, how do, how do you convey this in music? I don't know. Yeah how I'm going to capture this episode and their the approach that they take to it. And especially depending on who's writing the music is always fascinating to me. Yeah. I, I think anyone who can write a song about and the children shall lead definitely has special talent. <laughs> I'm looking forward there. I mentioned that they did the triples EP. The next EP that they're doing is Spock's brain. Yeah. I'd, I'd heard they were doing that one. I can't wait for that. That should be yeah. really interesting in, in some way. <laughs> in some way, it will be very, very interesting. Yeah. So what's going to happen at Star Trek Las Vegas is that they will be playing on the big stage interstitially during the event. So to keep everyone entertained as things are going on. Also on Saturday night at the Saturday night dessert party, they're going to be doing a one hour concert. That's for gold and captain's chair patrons. And so if you're going to the convention, keep your eye out for them. I think it's going to be great fun. 
And I'm really excited for them because more people will be able to hear their music. Yeah, There, there are so many Star Trek fans in the world that no matter what you do with Star Trek, whether it's music, whether it's podcasting like we do, most people have never heard of you still. You know, I mean, we've yeah. been doing Trek a film now for four years since I first started the network. A good three and a half years of, of doing the Ready Room, podcasting, Hyper Channel, all this stuff here. And, and I know that still like... 0.1% of Star Trek fans know that we exist. So yeah. anytime you can get this exposure, like five-year mission is going to get at the convention, that's just wonderful. So I'm really excited for them. I mentioned that they've been on the Ready Room a number of times. If you want to go hear those acoustic sets, look for the Ready Room episode three. That's your one. The Ready Room episode 25, that's your two. The Ready Room 121 is your three. And then if you also go look up Trek News and Views, episode 16, Colin had them on there as well. And it's always fun when they do those live acoustic sets for us. Okay, Daniel, we have one last story here in news today. And this is sort of a scientific engineering story. And I know that you studied astrophysics at Harvard. You studied engineering at MIT. And this next story is about tractor beams. And maybe they're becoming a little closer to reality. I was hoping you might be able to shed some light on this for me. Yeah, Chris, so this was a really interesting story from the Daily Mail where a group of Scottish engineers, appropriately enough, uh, maybe one of them is an ancestor of Montgomery Scott, um, had put together what they're describing as a tractor beam. The story didn't go into as much detail as I would have liked, but basically it seems like they're focusing sound waves to move tiny particles around, and they were suggesting it could be the sort of thing that could for example, be used in medical treatments to affect tumors mm -hmm. and so forth by focusing these beams of sound, sort of like the way you might do with a laser to apply forces and, and manipulate objects. So I thought it was really intriguing. Uh, as far as a Star Trek-esque tractor beam goes, I think the main downside of that is since it's sound waves, you couldn't use them in space, which would right. be the main downside. But uh, it could be the sort of thing taken to a taken to the logical extent, you know, farther down in the future, maybe you could use it for something like mining or, you know, things where you could use these focused beams of sound waves to move or otherwise, you know, drill holes or manipulate things. So it's uh, definitely an intriguing story. How would you theoretically handle a tractor beam in space because you can't use sound waves the way that they're doing it? That's one of those interesting questions that if you, I guess, b being... Uh, being the way I am, I do try to read about like what's the closest we could get these Star Trek technologies to fruition. And the tractor beam is actually one of the less clear ones. You know, you could use some sort of magnetic effects of some kind, but it's not entirely clear how that might work. You know, you could push things around with lasers. Actually, I think in many ways, probably the most realistic interpretation of it in a physics sense is probably an enterprise. Just having a big grappler hook would probably be simplest because a uh, you know a beam of attractive force. It's hard to envision what might create that with anything that's sort of on the, even really the long-term kind of physics and engineering radar. Um, so this is probably as close as one might get in the foreseeable future to some sort of tractor beam-like object. Don't you love the grappling hooks in Enterprise? Yeah, they <laughs> are really fun. cool. And I wish they used them more. Like You'd think it would be like a great tactical device to rip chunks out of other people's holes and things like that, right. but... Uh, Feel like it doesn't doesn't really get as much use as it might. Well, the tractor beam, in terms of what we think of in Star Trek, is you know today we're going to talk about the Doomsday Machine, and there's a point where they get caught in a tractor beam, right? They say they're caught in a tractor beam, 
and we see it throughout Star Trek. And what's interesting about this story, like you said, is that they're talking about using it. Now, mining is something I hadn't really thought about, but that's a great point about mining. They talk about using it for medical things. And they say, for example, you could treat cancer by guiding a drug capsule so that it would release its contents at a specific point. And that's the kind of stuff that we we never really think about when we hear tractor beam, right? Because we're so conditioned yeah. by science fiction to view it as this big beam of light that comes out and, and encompasses some large object. But we're actually talking about it more. It's It sounds to me more like a force field in this sense. Yeah, I'd say it is more like a, a wall of force or something like that. And since sound waves are just compression waves in the air, it is almost like you have these waves of compressed air pushing stuff around, which actually kind of makes me think one way you could implement this in space, and this is kind of wild speculation, but if you release some canisters of gas in space, then you could propagate sound waves through them and maybe use them mm. as a tractor beam in space. So that's been suggested for like, um, you know, being able to see lasers and things like that. So maybe there is some application for this as a, as a more Star Trek type uh, tractor beam after all. That's interesting. Yeah. And it's just, it's interesting, like you said, that it is different from that, you know, kind of more light laser force field type of thing that we're more conditioned to thinking about from, from Star Trek and holodeck and things like that. But I could see it being used in similar ways here on earth for military applications where you could use the sound yeah. waves. Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely true. And, you know, sufficiently strong sound waves uh, can definitely you know, uh, produce a great deal of force. So it, it uh, may definitely have some applications. Well, so the experiment itself, a real quick rundown of that, these Scottish scientists, they um, they had a device that's a square array of about a thousand ultrasound emitters. They placed it at the bottom of a water-filled chamber, and then they used the array to pull in hollow triangular objects. And to pull the objects, the array generates a low pressure at the front of the targets, and then the sound waves ricochet off the rear part of an item they're reflected and then the waves carry on forward in the direction they were traveling. And that helps to push the object that they hit toward the array. One thing I didn't know is that there is already an ultrasound device that is clinically approved for use in MRI guided focused ultrasound surgery. So this type of technology is maybe it's already approved for some practical use and and what they're doing would just further it and maybe refine it and make it more powerful. Yeah, I found that really interesting too. I, I was not familiar with that and you know, it could definitely have medical applications or um, like what you were saying with the military applications made me think um, during the Cold War, one of the things that the U.S. and Soviet submarine crews were due to each other is blast the other submarines with low-frequency sonar, which can be mm. really unpleasant and grating in high power levels. So um, I think these use, uses of focus sound, whether in medical or military or other applications uh, definitely in the in the long run, I think, uh, will always be there and may one day approach something like a tractor beam. I think this would be a very, very effective ground-based weapon if you were fighting a war against the Ferengi. Yeah, that, it would. I think <laughs> Ferengi more than any other race would be highly susceptible to the effect. Or, or the Ferengi and also that guy in the way to Eden with the, Dr. Severin, who also had gigantic ears, I think would be yeah. uh, very susceptible to the effects of this as a weapon. Yeah, could be. All right. Well, we'll put a link in the show notes to this article over on the Daily Mail if you would like to find out more. And it's 
it's always we're, we're moving closer to the Star Trek future all the time. The technology just might not take the exact form that we're expecting. All right, well, that's all we have in news before we jump into the feature where we're going to be joined by Suzanne Abbott and Drew Stewart, our own Landrew from Standard Orbit, to talk about the original series episode, The Doomsday Machine. I'd like to tell you about our sponsor for today's show, Audible.com. Audible is the best source for audiobooks that you'll find anywhere online. They have more than 150,000 titles waiting for you right now. They add hundreds of new titles every single week. And as a Trek FM listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice just for trying Audible. And what we like to do each week is to recommend a book for you so that you have something in mind to go pick up when you try out the service. And the book that I chose for today is Star Trek Preserver by William Shatner. And one reason that I chose this book is because, as we'll discuss in the feature, there's a little bit of a Paradise Syndrome connection to a theme in the Doomsday Machine. And this book also plays off of the Paradise Syndrome. Daniel, you told me that you've read this book. What did you think about it? I really enjoyed the book, Chris. Um, I, I... I'm kind of a junkie for all the uh, William Shatner and Judith and Garfield Reeves Stevens books, and this forms a part of one of their uh, uh, trilogies that they wrote with William Shatner. And I think it had a lot of really great ideas. Um, there was, you know, things that the preservers had done. One of my favorites was this idea, which, without giving anything away, why there are so many planets that look exactly like Earth within Star Trek, like uh, in, in the original series. In Miri, you have this exact copy of Earth or in uh, Bread and Circuses, and they, they approach it in this really neat uh, way. And there's also some very exciting space battles with the Next Generation crew and this evil Mirror Kirk and all sorts of enterprises from different times and universes. So I, I think it, it has lots and lots of different really interesting storylines, and uh, it's definitely uh, something worth picking up and, and uh, listening to. Yeah, the deadly and tyrannical Emperor Tiberius, former captain yeah. of the ISS Enterprise, does make an appearance here in this book. Yeah, pretty much every Mirror Universe character and then some is uh, is in the book, and uh, they're all really well characterized. And as you might expect from William Shatner bo- book, uh, both Kirk and Tiberius uh, get quite a bit of interesting, uh, interesting moments within the book. Definitely. Well, you can pick up this book, if you like, or any book you want absolutely free as a Trek FM listener. And all you need to do is go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm and sign up for a 30-day trial. And when you sign up to try out Audible, you're really helping us a lot. Because the money that we get when you try Audible actually almost covers the cost of hosting one of our shows for an entire month. And as you know, we have 16 shows here on the network. We have a lot of things we have to cover And it's just very simple. You try Audible for 30 days and you've really helped us out a lot. Plus, you get a great audiobook and it doesn't have to be Star Trek Preserver. It can be any book you want, absolutely free. And then at the end of the trial, if you decide not to stick with Audible, there's nothing to lose because you get to keep that book. But they have so many great books there waiting for you. I've been getting my audiobooks there for 14 years now. So I have a huge, huge collection. And I still listen to them all the time. In fact, I was just listening to one yesterday. I was listening to the radio drama from the BBC of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which is one of my all-time favorites. So you can pick that up as well if you want. But just go over to audibletrial.com slash trekfm, choose a book, try out Audible. And we really thank Audible for their support of the network and the ready room. (laughs) 
you ask fans of the original series to name their favorite episodes, invariably the Doomsday Machine comes up. Even James Doohan named the episode his favorite of the series. And in 1968, the Doomsday Machine received a Hugo Award nomination for Best Dramatic Presentation. But not all are in love with the story. DC Fontana named this episode as her least favorite, and the story's author, Norman Spinrad, has expressed disappointment with it many times in many areas. But today we're going to find out where we all stand on the Doomsday Machine, and I don't mean on the surface of it out in space, because that would be very dangerous. And to help us do that, we're joined once again by Suzanne Abbott. Hello, Suzanne. Hello. Permission to come aboard. What do you mean, come aboard? You've got a cot set up in the corner of the studio, apparently. You're on every podcast these days. People aren't supposed to know that. (laughs) Okay. I'll, I'll keep it quiet. I'll keep it quiet. Okay. And also, of course, we're joined by one of the hosts of our TOS show, Standard Orbit, Landrew. Joy to you, friends. Welcome back, Landrew. It's good to be part of the body. Well, it is time for the Doomsday Machine. And actually, Daniel, this time, suggested the episode and said, you know, this is my, I think you said this is my favorite episode of TOS, right, Daniel? Uh, That's my second right behind Mirror Mirror. Oh, that's right. Second right behind Mirror Mirror. So I just said, okay, let's do Doomsday Machine. And Landrew, you and Suzanne were both on board with it. Before we jump into the story, you know, we usually do a little episode synopsis here. I think most fans know the story of the Doomsday Machine, but if you don't, really quickly, the Enterprise enters a solar system where seven planets have been destroyed and there are a couple still intact in the inner part of the solar system. They find a shattered starship, which is the constellation, and then they find this massive machine that's shooting fire, or at least it's, it's like a big furnace in space, basically. Commodore Decker, who lost his crew and his ship, comes over to the Enterprise, takes command, tries to chase down the machine. Kirk does some amazing MacGyver work over on the Constellation, as does Scotty. And um, in the end, everything's okay. They get away. That's the story. Is that a good synopsis? Well, not everybody gets away. Well, not everybody gets away. I mean, Decker doesn't get away, but... Yeah, everybody except one. But that's his choice. But that's his choice. He wasn't trying to get away. He was trying to become one with the Doomsday Machine. He took his crew. Yeah. He just wanted to be with his crew. Or maybe he wanted to be one with the Doomsday Machine because he loved it so much. I think that's what it was, yeah. They had a special love. Yep. He was attracted to uh, the uh, light. Yeah, the yeah. the love between a man and his cement-covered windsock. <laughs> yeah, good, it looked like a, a hand roll of sushi. The whole time well, I yeah, was looking that, at it, I was like, okay. I'm really hungry and I want sushi. Why? Because it looks like a hand roll of sushi. <laughs> right, like hand roll sushi. Yeah, that's sort of a cone shape, yeah. With a fiery center, got a lot of uh, hot sauce. <laughs> That's or right. just a lot of row. So there's my terrible synopsis of the Doomsday Machine, but I think everyone knows this episode. It, it'd be easier if you just played the five-year mission song. It, well, I already did that. I did that before we started talking, Landry. <laughs> you just don't know it yet since I put it in in post. Oh, time travel and so forth. That's right. All right, so let's jump into the discussion. And th- the first thing that we want to talk about is... The, there are two themes in this episode. We have a lot of topics to cover here, so let's just jump right on in to the two themes. There's Moby Dick, and there's 
H-bombs are bad, right? And the first one is the Moby Dick theme, which I call the whale's gray and fiery hump. And <laughs> I find it interesting that I... So Star Trek has revisited Moby Dick a number of times, and this is really the first one. And then we see it again in Obsession, where Kirk is mm-hmm. going to get that cloud that has wronged him. Of course, the Wrath of Khan has a Moby Dick theme to it. And then Picard actually quotes Moby Dick in First Contact. So there we go. Yeah. I find it interesting here because it seems so obvious when you watch it, when you look at the Doomsday Machine, it's like a well in space, that William Wyndham, who's playing Commodore Decker, said that he didn't realize at the time that he was playing Captain Ahab in space. And he thought that the story was kind of silly with the spaceship and this machine that destroys planets. And so right off the bat, I want to know what you guys think about the Moby Dick element of the story and what you think about Wyndham's performance, given that he was not approaching it as an allegory of Moby Dick. Yeah, I find that surprising that he did not see that aspect of it um, in hindsight. You know, for me, I I never was as impressed or moved by the the H-bomb allegorical elements. I've always seemed to be more about this basically pretty simple, not simplistic, but straightforward story of Moby Dick-like revenge that Decker has in his battle with the machine. And it's, it's not that subtle, so I'm surprised both that he didn't see it just on sort of the merits of the script, but also since I think he most people would agree he did give a very strong performance, so... Even if he did think the material was material was silly, it's sort of like um, you know, apparently the in the original Star Wars movie, a lot of those actors thought that it was silly and was never going to amount to anything, and of course it did later. So I, I think even regardless of whether he thought that, uh, it does not really come out in in his performance. I think. I think at this point, even with uh, kind of like Shakespeare, and everybody's everybody's done their their Shakespeare, all the Shakespearean actors and things. I think that. Even if you don't realize this is Captain Ahab, Captain Ahab, uh, the whole Moby Dick thing has become almost Shakespeare level of everyone's done this story or or played a character like this before. So I think Wyndham had that maybe in his in his subconscious, like you know we've got the Moby Dick thing because he, I think he does play it really well. Um, he's he's a crazy man obsessed with revenge, and that's exactly how he plays it. And he's got the great moments where he's like sitting in the captain's chair playing with the playing with the data cards with the I light. I like it what he chews on, on them. It's fantastic. <laughs> I mean you'd never see another character do something like that. And, Except that, you that still, well, in Star Trek, right? That was actually yeah. his homage to Humphrey Bogart, though. Yeah, that as right. soon as I saw that, at least this most recent time, I instantly just thought Queeg, because it's so so similar to that. And and it's it's really inspired for him for him to do that, and I think that uh, I think he brings a lot of a greatness to the role. I'm not familiar with the actor who's uh, they re- wrote the part for. That would be Robert Ryan. Robert Ryan. Right. I'm not familiar with Robert Ryan. Uh, what what's he? Or uh, Dirty Dozen, him? The Wild Bunch. Oh, he was in a lot yeah. of war movies. Very very powerful actor. Right. He was in that movie Saving Robert Ryan, which was very popular. Oh, <laughs> I did see that one. <laughs> he was he was that wasn't a, his best performance. I, I think he was a classic actor, but it's hard for me to imagine him really being you know, significantly better than than Wyndham was here. I think yeah. he was he was so good in that role. It's hard to imagine what it would have 
you've been like with someone else. And for me, this is in the 60s. And with Wyndham's performance here, it actually makes this episode feel more like 60s television or 60s sci-fi for me than TOS generally does. Did you get that feeling? Just the, the, the nature of the performance. In what way? Just the way the lines are delivered in particular, um, the, the, the pattern of the speech and the delivery of the lines felt very, uh, you know, six of the people in this episode were in the Twilight Zone as well, have been in Twilight Zone episodes. Mm-hmm. And, and this feels a lot like a Twilight Zone. When Wyndham's performance feels a lot like a Twilight Zone mm-hmm. delivery for me. Very much so. Yeah. Okay, I can yeah. see that. I could definitely see him as a Twilight Zone character. I mean, but that... I mean, maybe because I'm not overly familiar with other shows from the 60s, like Twilight Zone or Lost in Space and stuff. I I really like that. I don't feel like it it, it dates it or brings it back. It's just, to me, that makes part of what makes this episode so standout and so classic is that it does have that, that vintage feel to it, maybe. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think one of the things I was thinking when I was watching it was, I think this is one, even despite the heavy visual effects nature of it, it would be one of the few episodes that could really work as almost like a radio drama because there's so much yeah. you know, interplay between you know, Spock and Decker and Kirk and Decker. And I think, you know, if you look at the Twilight Zone, for example, um, you know, I think the Twilight Zone even now continues to hold up well because the writing was so good. It does. Um, and it's it reminds me of the Twilight Zone more so than some of the other you know, more silly 60s TV shows, you know, like Lost in Space uh, that, you know, maybe were nominally in the same genre, but didn't really have that level of writing that the Twilight Zone and Star Trek had. Oh, definitely. Well, with the Moby Dick element as well, does is when you watch this episode, is that what stands out to you first? Or is it the message about an actual doomsday weapon? And in this case, the H-bomb. So for me, I was never really that moved by the H-bomb element of it, you know, maybe because we are in this post-Cold War era, but it always seemed to me to really be a story about that you know, Captain Ahab type element and the, the revenge story of, of Decker against the, the machine. And the, the H-bomb thing is there. It's very clear. They certainly don't try to, to hide it or be subtle about it, but it never... I think it would be hard for anyone to come away from the episode thinking like, wow, now I really understand, you know, why nuclear weapons are bad and why we can't allow them to dominate our society rather than, you know, that was a, you know, a powerful, uh, you know, Moby Dick-esque uh, kind of story. Yeah, it, it's, it's definitely an essential part of the, like the backstory or at least Kirk's theory about the backstory but i i've never seen it as an important part of the episode and in fact i completely forgotten about it until i saw it uh for this for this particular preparing for this episode i was like oh oh yeah they're they're trying to talk about how everybody wants to build an ultimate weapon in order to keep the other person from building an ultimate weapon which kind of reminds me of the uh serpents among the ruins book that we discussed on literary tracks Mm mm-hmm a couple weeks ago and how uh, everyone's afraid of uh, in that one, people were afraid of building the ultimate weapon. But in this one, apparently someone outside of the galaxy built the ultimate weapon and it, it got loose or somebody used it. And, but, but to me that was never, it's great that this episode has like this, this double kind of parallel story thing, 
but but to me i completely forgotten about the the h bomb aspect and it i'm sure it was very important for the people living in the cold war yeah at the time but but for us i i it's kind of disposable part of the story i mean i can see the whole moby dick aspect of it and i i understand that but the whole h bomb thing actually rang true for me and even though we are in the post cold war era we still have countries that are building these bombs and threatening to bomb each other. Libya is threatening to bomb North Korea. North Korea is working on theirs. It's still very, very much in the front of my mind that, hey, we're all going to kill each other. And we all need to learn from that. I can see that. And I think the principle definitely still applies. Uh, But in my mind, at least within the context of this episode specifically, I feel like the the line where Kirk explains what a doomsday machine is, is really the only place where that comes in. And they could have just as easily, I think just taken out that line titled the episode, the planet killer. And it probably would have worked just as well without that. But I I agree that the message still applies. Definitely. I I do like the idea of it being, it being a robot and they, they discuss it as being the doomsday machine is a machine. It is a robot. It's not, some kind of uh, a creature that was bred and got loose or something. It was a machine built for this purpose. It's not a mining, uh, you know, not a planet mining machine that got out of control. It's a weapon and it was designed as a weapon. And I think that, that might make the, the H bomb allegory more solid. Maybe. Mm -hmm. Daniel, I think I agree with you that, if you took Kirk's statement out, then you almost would remove that element of the story because he does, he just, it, it actually comes out of the blue a little bit where Kirk decides early on, like they were attacked before he really knows what's going on. He just makes the assumption they were attacked. Then he finds the machine. Then they do the research and they find out that it came from another galaxy and it was, um, it's designed to destroy planets. And then, Kirk makes the leap there, right? That it, well, it must have been designed as part of a war and something, it's an, ult- an ultimate weapon. You've heard of a doomsday machine before. So you could remove that and the story would still work just fine with it. I think it's important to put the episode into context of the time, though, that if you were viewing this in 1967, you were just 22 years after the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And and you were into a period of time where those H-bombs that were used against Japan were, the, the weapons that followed were becoming more and more and more powerful. And so they really would be doomsday machines, doomsday weapons. And this was very much on the mind of people. And you were getting really into the Cold War. You were really starting to get into the standoff, uh, nuclear standoff between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. I think this part of the story probably carried a lot more weight at the time when you were viewing it than it does for us now, where, uh, Landry, like you said, the Moby Dick element is the one that really stands out most, I think, to viewers today. Which is a strength of the writing, though, that it has elements that could speak on one level in 1967 and yet still give us something else today that still works and makes the episode one that you keep watching over and over. Yeah, it's it's an element of good sci-fi mm-hmm. is being able to tell a good science fiction story while also having the layers. Yeah. And I think that's why this might 
I mean, besides the action and the space battles that really isn't anywhere else in TOS, uh, this episode is really good at having those different layers. Right. I think it also highlights the fact that so many of these TOS episodes were written by giants of science fiction. I mean, Norman Spinrad is a famous, famous science fiction writer and was able to craft this type of story. And even though he was rather disappointed with the way it was pulled off on screen, it still it still works. It's still a strong story that stands the test of time. Yeah, I thought it was interesting. I read that he had originally envisioned the Doomsday Machine as being bristling with weapons and more complicated, but I can't. I don't really see that affecting the ultimate sort of impact of the episode, at least for me. And I think, while as we were saying, it's the strength of, of good sci-fi writing in particular that, while maybe some of the specific political issues are you know, different now than they were at the time, there are still these other broader themes that just remain true of, of people and humanity in general that stand the test of time. Yeah, and, and I think that the simplicity of what they did with the final design actually helps the story. I don't know that I would want to have... There's no mystery. Well, I, can, I won't say there's no mystery to it, but it's not as interesting if it's obviously a weapon with all kinds of stuff all over it that's going to destroy mm-hmm. you. It's more interesting when it's this weird object that looks like a giant, as you said, Suzanne, hand-rolled sushi furnace <laughs> that's going to come and <laughs> wrap your planet well, the weapon itself, like who built it? Where did it come from? Spock says it came from outside the galaxy. So we know that. Why was it built? Kirk speculates that it's the remnant of some war and the people who built it are no longer there, but the weapon continues on. And that's a theme we see later on in Star Trek, even if you go back all the way through to Voyager, you know, where you have the robot races that are fighting each other because they've mm-hmm. the people who built them are gone. This has been retconned in the literature by Peter David in his novel Vendetta, which is a TNG novel. And what he did was was interesting in that he connected the plant. Well, for one thing, there's more than one, which this is something they speculate at the end of the episode, right? Spock wonders, are there more of these out there somewhere? And Kirk says, I hope not, you know, and that's where they kind of get close to their little lighthearted moment at the end with the way that Shatner delivers the lines, but there, there are more of these out there. And what Peter David speculated was that this machine was actually built by the preservers and the preservers we know from the paradise syndrome, because they're the people that the natives call the wise ones. And also in the chase on TNG, when we find out that there was this ancient race that seeded all the oceans, and that's why we all look so similar to each other. Those, um, they're never named who that was, but Ronald E. Moore said that he, he didn't specify it, but he did consider that those were the preservers as well. And what Peter David said was that the preservers, they've been around for so long, they actually fought the Borg, and these machines were designed to fight the Borg. So the Borg destroy planets. This machine uh, sweeps up the remnants of planets to keep itself re-energized so it can continue to fight the Borg. So that's sort of the the retconning of the origin of the Doomsday Machine. What do you think about that? So I I read Vendetta some years ago, and I was actually a little disappointed with it um, in the sense that I did think it was a good book. I did like the idea of a Doomsday Machine fighting giant Borg cubes, which was pretty awesome. But 
for me, one thing that made it not work so well was they had this scene early in the book where they Picard goes through this long explanation of like why they couldn't really have come from outside the galaxy, the doomsday machines, which is kind of necessary to having the preservers create them. And at least to me, I think the idea that they do come from outside the galaxy is, is one of the more interesting things about it, because there really aren't that many things in Star Trek that are extra galactic and even Voyager that's all within our galaxy. And I, I think it's just more provocative, the idea that this, you know, these two fantastically advanced civilizations in an entirely different galaxy created this and their war was apparently so destructive that some of these machines you know, came over those hundreds of uh, well, many millions of uh, light years to you know, come and attack our, our own galaxy. So I, I didn't really like that aspect of it. But that being said, I, you know, I did think the idea of linking them with these more powerful races like the Borg or the Preservers was interesting. And um, I don't remember if it was that book or another one where they talked about whether the galactic barrier had been erected to keep them out, but it certainly seems relevant mm -hmm. to that idea of them coming from outside. I'm, I'm not a fan of, of the idea. I've not read Vendetta, but I feel like too often the, the Star Trek extended universe tries to tie in the Borg too much. Um, and I'm sure, uh, is if it is it is it a recent book like like no. was it written after Voyager? No, yeah. it's like nine. It was like five or something. Yeah, I can see that being. I can see that being a uh, a good idea for like fighting TNG era Borg that were unstoppable. Yeah. Mm. But now in a post Voyager universe, <laughs> right. looking at like oh we've got to build a giant doomsday machine to stop the Borg. I'm like you can stop the Borg with coffee. I mean. <laughs> Oh, suspension. Can I just say, because you brought up coffee, apparently coffee's really big in Starfleet in the 23rd century because when Kirk goes over to the constellation, the absence of half-empty cups of coffee is an indication to him that something is wrong on the ship. Oh, yeah. Yeah, not the destroyed Because they had to take the coffee with them. Right, yeah. because they always have the yeoman comes on the bridge and delivers coffee and Dixie cups on the Enterprise. So... It's apparently a big thing there. <laughs> yeah, See, that, they could have defeated the Borg. They had enough coffee. <laughs> it occurred to me like on, on most of the episodes of the original series where they run into other Constitution-class ships, always something really awful happened to them and something weird happened to the bodies. Like in this case, they're not there. In the Omega Glory, they've all decomposed into crystals. Uh, in uh, in the Tholian web, they're all like phasing into some other universe. Yeah. So I guess you don't want to be on any other Constitution-class ship during that time period. Right. And even the Enterprise isn't safe. I mean, people come and steal your brain by touching your head, and even the it Enterprise is dangerous. Yeah. It's cheaper. You don't have to pay the extras. <laughs> you could just have empty sets. <laughs> That's right. That's true. But going back to what you were saying, Landrew, yeah, if this were Voyager-era Borg, the Doomsday Machine would have a conference room built into the top where they could have negotiations and, you know, work <laughs> out a deal. Hey, not everybody yeah. can be Captain Catherine Janeway, okay? <laughs> and speaking about that, Peter David, I will not read his books because he killed her. I won't read his books. Oh. oh. Well, she's back now, so. Yes, she is. <laughs> Everybody comes back in truck literature. That's true. <laughs> no one ever really dies. So I don't know. It was, it's an, it's always interesting in the literature how they do connect things. 
for me personally, I prefer for some things to remain a mystery. Like, where did this thing come、mm-hmm. from? It's fine with me that it's a mystery, and I also agree that too many things get connected to the Borg. And in the case of this、Feature. book, this was written before that was the commonplace thing, you know. But it became a thing where, like, okay, everything's connected to the Borg. Okay, I, I, I prefer yeah, I to just wonder where this thing came from. It's fun to speculate. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think it's. I think the mark of good science fiction is it tells you just enough, like they do here, to、yeah. get an idea of where it's from, but they leave it open enough that you can imagine all sorts of interesting possibilities for it. You know, one of my favorite books is Rendezvous with Rama by Arthur、yeah. C. Clarke, and what I love about Rendezvous with Rama, the original book, is that it's a mystery from beginning to end, and even when you finish the book, they still don't know what this thing was that entered the solar system. And then later on, with Gentry Lee, he wrote Rama Two, Garden of Rama, and Rama Revealed, and then you actually do find out what's going on. And I love the ending of Rama Revealed; it's very like New Agey, but it's interesting. But the first book, in particular, is fascinating because they go on to this vessel, which is—I mean—it kind of reminds you of the Doomsday Machine, if it weren't a giant furnace, but if it were just this big object. Or the well probe from Star Trek Four, or something. This mysterious object that comes in, and they go on there and they investigate the inside, and it's incredible. They have no clue what it's for, why it's there, and then it goes away, and you still don't know. Yeah, yeah, I, that's one of my favorite books for the same、uh, same reason. That, that and yeah, you, know, you see that in other, I think, well regarded episodes of Star Trek, like the Guardian、uh, Forever, for example. Yeah, similar in that regard. And the whale probe. I'm sure the books explain the whale probe, but I like the idea of here's a probe. It. I mean, I've, I mean, since I was a kid, where did the whale probe come from? I mean, it's been fun to sit there and try to imagine. I'm glad that they never went back to it and never explained. Oh, the whale probe was sent by the Borg. Because the Borg <laughs> like the like the whales. The Borg I, I, I like the whales. The They've been working on new implants <laughs> that will fit on whales, and they needed to test them out. And then they came to test them, yeah, and, the Borg, and the whales weren't there. And Where are the whales? They needed the cetaceans. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, let's move on to some some characters here. Let's talk about Decker a little bit. Commodore Ahab himself,、oh. and Commodore Decker. Yeah, Commodore Ahab, not Will Decker, not Will Decker. Although Will Decker is is his son, though, is Matt Decker's son. So there's a connection for you. And anyway, the the motivation of Decker in this episode, which again is one reason why I find it odd that Wyndham didn't pick up on the Moby Dick allegory here, because it is straight out of Moby Dick. It is Captain Ahab. He's determined. He's lost his crew. He's been wronged by this machine, this robot. I always find it odd when they call it a robot, just because、yeah. I picture a robot as being nomad. Yeah, or well, Nomad's a probe, right? I mean, I, I picture robot as being something that walks around, even though I know that's data. Not, well, not data, but something less sophisticated than data, like Robbie、Robin. the robot, like Tweaky from Buck Rogers. Danger. Yes, like like the robot、oh, from、Tweaky. Lost in Space or Tweaky from Buck Rogers or something. Yeah, so so I find that odd because I mean, that's a that's a big robot out there in space, <laughs> but. Anyway, his motivations. How did you feel about what's driving Decker in this in this episode? I thought about this a lot when I was 
watching it uh, you know, yesterday to prepare for this and you know, tried to focus on that in particular, having seen it so many times before. And a couple of things kind of came to mind. Um, you know, the reason why he says to Spock that he has to take control of the ship is to save Rigel. But it would seem that, based on what Spock says, that the best way to save Rigel or at least save the maximum number of people would be to warn Starfleet. Right. So obviously there is that element of revenge there. And for me, one of the most powerful moments of the whole of the whole episode is where Decker is trying to justify taking command from from Spock, and Spock tells him, "You tried to engage it once before, Commodore, and the result was a wrecked ship and a dead crew." And they just stare at each other because I think he knows that there isn't really any way he can beat them with the ship, but he's but with the Enterprise. But he's so driven to to achieve his revenge that he tries it anyway. And um, you know, there was that Queeg like element we talked about before. And also, one thing I noticed was when they're captured in the tractor beam, and Spock gets them to agree to veer off. He's not really that concerned, Decker, with actually veering off. He goes back, he just slumps down in the chair, he doesn't look at anybody or anything, and it's Spock who sort of takes control of the actual veering off process. So I I don't know if I'd say he has a death wish per se, but I think that he has allowed his desire for revenge to subsume his, his whatever other motivations he has of or may claim to have of trying to save other people or... Um, or even himself. Yeah, well, psychologically, he's just a broken man. I mean, he even said himself, I've never lost a command. Having to separate himself from losing his crew, losing his ship, I don't think he was able to get past that. He just wanted to commit suicide, per se, and, and just be with his crew. It's just, a, it was just a driving force at that point for him be with his crew in the great galactic afterlife is that what we're is that what he was yes. going for on shaka in the continuum on Shakari, yes and it's sort of a cruel twist of fate the way that you know like, like he says you know, usually you're supposed to be the last man on the ship and the last man to save himself but he ends up being the only one alive and he just yeah. he can't seem to live with that yeah yeah there's there's something really heartbreaking about i mean because he sends them all down and then the machine attacks again and breaks the transporter and he can't save them. Communication still works so he can hear them as the planet's being carved up. Like that would affect him, especially not ever losing a command. So he's got like this, this perfect record and uh, he loses this one time and he loses in the biggest way possible. And I, yeah. and it just, it breaks him. It absolutely breaks him. And I wouldn't say he's justified in all of his decisions, but I, I can I can see where he's coming from. I can I can not really excuse it, but excuse it. But the blind revenge element is definitely there because if he if he were thinking rationally, then as a commander, I think he would feel that the best way to honor his crew that gave their lives is to make sure that no one else is harmed by this machine, which is what Spock is trying to tell him, right? That we, we need to notify Starfleet so that they know this thing is out here. And he just blindly disregards that and is just absolutely determined. And it's not like, it's not like say, he had the original Enterprise and now he's on the Enterprise D and it's so much more powerful and maybe he can make a difference this time, right? He's on a ship that's just like the one that he lost already. 
So clearly, he already knows what the capabilities of the ship are against this object, and that it's a hopeless situation. And one mark of a good commander is knowing the limitations of of your troops or or your resources, and there's a strategy to it. You have to have a strategy to it. You can't just charge in. You're, you're going to lose most of the time. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of an episode of DS9 I, I don't really like, but I think it's relevant to this, Valiant, where you, yeah. know, you have this incredibly aggressive kid who doesn't know what he's doing and as nog says at the end something along the lines of like he may have been a good a good squad leader or whatever it was but he was a bad captain yeah um and i think for similar reasons there but psychologically when you're that affected even though in your mind you know the correct thing to do it doesn't mean you're always going to follow it oh right yeah well that's exactly what's going on here and, and like landrew was saying i think i guess to to jump forward in time to ds9 again it was in the ship when they lose their crew members cisco says to dax something like you know if, that whenever this stops affecting us in this way is when we have to start worrying about ourselves and i think for you know listening to your crew get killed not being able to do anything about it and knowing you put them there for that not to affect you and really break your psyche i think you know would there sort of have to be something wrong with your psyche to begin with well let's talk about one other character here. That's Spock. We've seen Spock in command before and generally not with good results. I'm very much on record as saying I don't think Vulcans make good starship commanders. And we saw Spock in the Galileo 7 and what a disaster that was when he had to actually make decisions. Now he is in a situation where he's in command of the Enterprise in a very difficult situation. And he's got someone who outranks him who wants to take control of the ship. And Spock has to try to hold the pieces together while Decker tries to get everyone killed through his irrational behavior. I thought Spock did a pretty good job in this situation. What did you guys think about Spock? Yeah. One of my favorite things that I've discovered since, since joining the network about TOS is how terrible Spock is as in command and how everyone tries to mutiny against him. Usually it's Scotty and McCoy, but they were busy in this episode. And so the guy who mutinies is outranks him, so takes over. So then Spock becomes the mutineer. And and I think that that's, that's a nice little twist on a cliche that they may not have picked up that they were doing. Speaking of which, I need to make an episode on that. <laughs> <laughs> Spock gets mutinied. I'm going to write that down. Um, <laughs> Watch for that on Standard Orbit coming soon. Yes, coming soon. But yes, in, in this in this instance, I think he was right. And that his logic, maybe because Kirk wasn't in danger, usually, well, Kirk does get to be in danger. But when it starts, it's just Kirk's fixing the ship over here. We're towing him. There's There's not really a problem. Let's go pick him up and let's leave. And there's... It's when Kirk is in real danger that Spock becomes a liability, I think. Uh, either not caring about Kirk being in danger or caring too much. And, but you would never know uh, yeah, from his I, demeanor, right? Which one exactly. is the case? Which one is it? Is it? But uh, yeah, I think that, that Spock really really shines in this one. Uh, he, he seems to be on the right page. Yeah, this would actually be where his logic... Is, is an asset because what he was trying to do was the most logical thing. 
Whereas usually it's the most logical thing, but yet we don't want to go that route. That's not what we're trying to prove. So that's why people try and mutiny. Yeah. I, I think it's an interesting point that, that Landrew makes about um, you know, Spock letting his concern for Kirk sometimes get in the way of his judgment. Like you, you see in like the devil in the dark where he's very set on capturing the creature. But as soon as it poses a threat to Kirk, he starts screaming at him that he needs to kill it. Um, so I, I think sometimes you see that reflected in Spock's demeanor. But here, it, I don't think it really affects his, his actions uh, when in command. I think the logic helps here in the sense that he's able to remain cool because I could see a human in his situation wanting to achieve the exact same goals and follow the same path that Spock is trying to follow here. But it would be difficult because of the emotions that you would get fed up with Decker and you would lose your cool and you would not have the patience to actually get Decker out of the command chair so that you can take control of the situation again. And I mean, you even see it with Kirk, <laughs> like you're the lunatic responsible for almost destroying my ship. I mean, if Kirk had been on the enterprise, he probably would have decked Decker. I have to separate those words. Without so they a doubt. Together, you know, but I, <laughs> but I think this is where it, it is an asset that Spock was able to remain cool, to rationally, make decisions and just be patient to find a way to to get Decker off the bridge so that he could then go and get Kirk off the ship and and figure out a way out of the situation. Well, speaking of that, one thing I'd be interested in your opinions on is when they finally do get rid of Decker, it's on Kirk's personal authority as captain of the Enterprise. And like it seems to me if you're say a captain in the US Navy and an admiral takes command of your ship. You can't just like get rid of him because of your personal authority as captain of the ship. Like, what, what do you think of the the legality of that maneuver? I think whatever Kirk wants to be legal is legal on his ship. That's true. Yeah, <laughs> certainly true. If you can't contact Starfleet, Kirk's the one in charge, even if someone higher ranked than him is around. Yeah. I think there is some precedent in Star Trek that the commander of a ship has some room to make calls that are counter to a, a, an officer that outranks them if the officer is on board the ship for a particular mission as a as a commodore or an admiral or a walking galactic timepiece um you know <laughs> yeah. from the Galileo 7 but yeah but I, but I don't know off the top of my head, like, what is the exact intricacy of that? But clearly someone who outranks someone else can, can give them orders and take control. But you see Kirk resist against that. You see Picard resist against that as well. There is, if, if I were making the rules, I, I think you have to be careful not to allow someone from the outside to come onto a mission, come onto a ship and have complete authority just because they outrank someone. Because we know how many bad morals there are in Star Trek. And Leave Necheyev alone. <laughs> she's not the only one. There, <laughs> there are lots of them everywhere. There's something about when you slap that belt buckle on, the bad comes out. But they don't know the personnel. They don't know the the culture of the ship. And they come in, and more often than not, they might 
think they're exercising good authority, but typically it's going to have bad results. Just like if you went into any company and you you took over the company on the first day, you start making all these changes. It's going to just wreck the office. It's not going to be good. You're not going to get the results you're after. All right, so we all agree Spock probably did a pretty good job in this particular episode. I still think Vulcans make bad captains. And if, if I ever got assigned to an all-Vulcan ship, I would put in for a transfer right away. Immediately. For my own safety. <laughs> but, pre- but evidently they would make excellent poker players because Vulcans never bluff. Wouldn't, wouldn't that be awesome <laughs> if there were a series where every everyone on the series was a Vulcan, the ship, it was an all-Vulcan ship, but they had poker night like on The Next Generation. Yeah. Those scenes would be fascinating. That would be really cool. <laughs> they would be literally fascinating. They'd all be saying it was fascinating too, probably. Yeah. I'm afraid that I cannot beat your flush. <laughs> <laughs> and Savick says, it's the way you arch your eyebrow when you're bluffing. And Spock says, I always arch my eyebrow. And so do you. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's move on to another topic here. The fact that this is a dark episode, Daniel, this is something that you put on the outline that I hadn't really thought about very much. But within the context of the original series, this is a very straightforward episode. It's it's dark. It's very serious. There's not much humor in this episode. There's essentially no humor. There are a few moments where there, are, you know, you can see a little bit there, but it doesn't have the type of humor that we're accustomed to in a lot of original series episodes. Daniel, again, you put this on the outline, so you jump in here. How did you feel about the deadly tone, how it worked for the story and how it contrasts with other episodes within TOS. I, so for me, it worked. I thought it worked really well. And I think one of the dangers of doing something that's just straight drama is if you're off even a little bit, it, it kind of sinks the quality of the episode as a whole. And I think one of the strengths of Star Trek was it, it really in all its incarnations, it, it usually does have some aspects of humor and never really takes itself, you know, so seriously that it can't be enjoyed. But I think in this particular episode, um, it, it really does work to set the tone, you know, right from the very beginning, you have this destroyed solar systems, wrecked starship, crazed commander, and it just kind of goes downhill from there. And, you know, literally even the lighting is dark uh, in the auxiliary control and the constellation where Kirk spends a lot of his time deals with these themes of insanity and suicide. And, and one thing that really works for me is the, the score written for this episode, which had its, you know, own, own unique uh, music, which was rare for, for TOS episodes. And I think that also adds to the, the dark nature, just having these musical cues all hidden exactly the right spot. And like you were saying, Chris, there's, you know, literally just a couple of, uh, a couple of lines that are, you know, maybe somewhat humorous, but they're really, I think the episode does, it stands alone without it. And I, I think in this case, it, it came together really well and, and just enhanced the, the seriousness and, and quality of the episode in this case. It was a really serious, dark episode for me. I, and I, the music definitely played into a part of that. Just the very last five minutes where Kirk's trying to get transported off that ship. I'm on the edge of my seat, even though I've seen it before. Many times I'm like, gosh, is he going to make it? Maybe he's, he's not going to make it this transport time. Effect. Oh my gosh, oh my gosh, no! <laughs> yeah, it's, it affects me each time. It's, it has me shaking because I don't know. Even though I do know, I still don't know. <laughs> yeah, I thought the same thing yesterday watching that last sequence. Like, 
I haven't seen this 50 times, 75 times, and I know he's going to get off, but I was still wondering that. It was just too close for comfort. <laughs> it's interesting you bring that up because not, not knowing, like, is he going to get off this time? I don't know. The uh, early script for this episode, actually, Decker doesn't sacrifice himself. He doesn't actually go into the doomsday machine. He's saved, and then he admits that he was wrong in his actions. If that had actually been what happened in the story, would this episode still work for you? Or is there something in the sacrifice that completes the story? I don't think it it wouldn't be as powerful Mm -hmm. as it was. So I have the, if any of you remember the old Blish novels of the the Star Trek episodes, the Doomsday Machine version of that actually, as with many of his his outlines, is based on an earlier version of the script. And that does happen. And I thought it was significantly weaker. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think it, it's, it's sort of key to the episode. I, I think it works much less well without having Decker die at the end. Here's one for you, Landrew, because I know that, that you and Mike like to talk about the J.J. Abrams movies a lot. <laughs> did, <laughs> did it remind you a little bit? I, I wonder if in not the reason for the actions, but just the sequence, kind of the fill the sequence itself. When George Kirk flies into the Narada at the beginning of the 2009 film, it almost mm-hmm. feels like an homage to Decker flying into the Doomsday Machine. Well, I think, I think George is a little more, not, I wouldn't say flippant, but, uh, he he it's more self-sacrifice sure. and not like yeah. roaring you know ah revenge ah. right that's what i mean <laughs> not not the reason behind it not the exact scene but just the sequence itself it kind of they remind me of one another a bit i can see yeah. that i can see that i doubt that 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 was a, a deliberate influence but but i'm sure that, that that's something they had at the back of their minds so what are your thoughts, Landrew, on the dark nature of the episode? I was really struck by that uh, even before I, I saw the notes watching the episode today. It was, uh, it just goes right into it. There's a solar system. It's completely gone. Like, whoa, wait a minute. You're not going to have like a cute little thing where like, let's make fun of Chekhov for a couple minutes. Well, he wasn't in the episodes. They couldn't make fun of him. See, that's the problem. Right. He wasn't there and. They can make fun of his hair. Nobody's in this episode. See, that, that, for me, I said up front, for many Star Trek fans, this is one of their favorite episodes. Like, what are your favorite TOS episodes? And Doomsday Machine comes out. For me, this is not one of my favorite episodes. This is very much middle of the road for me. It's, it's, I like it okay, but it doesn't make my list of favorite episodes. And I think one, one reason is that the fact that Uhura is not in it. It's, you know, it's, Mm -hmm. there are elements of TOS and maybe it's also the straight nature of the story as well that Daniel or Landrew, who said earlier that this would make a good radio drama. I had mentioned that. Yeah. I think you're right there. And I think as a piece of science fiction, and again, Norman Spinrad wrote this, it's good. As an original series episode, it's missing some of the elements and some of the charm of TOS, which is the reason why I love TOS. And so for me, it, it never makes my list of the best episodes. I like Kirk being able to fix his own ship. Well, I, I like mean, that that's too. Really cool yeah. to see yeah. is you know Kirk cool. down there, you know, like welding stuff together. I, I'm impressed, and his knowledge of 
you know, 20th century philosophies of the Cold War yeah. and, you know, doomsday machines. And he's got this vast amount of knowledge that, that really comes into play in this episode. Well, I think 20th century history is a, a required course at the Academy for everybody. Because yeah. everybody this, seems to know about it in every single <laughs> series. That's what it there's says on the some, book. There's Landry. always an expert. On the front of their textbook, it says the best century. <laughs> well, yeah. no, what it is, is they got that book, Who Wrote the Greatest Generation? Tom Brokaw. The Greatest Generation is is a required textbook, and that's what it is. Okay. Is the... <laughs> Is that they were they they took it seriously? Maybe they have an animatronic Tom Brokaw who teaches the class. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> and it's interesting how, as you go forward in time with the Star Trek series, their their very their particularly detailed cultural knowledge of yeah. the characters goes forward with that too. Yeah, yeah. So like Paris oh, yeah. is very familiar with the '90s, and Kirk's very familiar with the '60s. It's it's all really convenient for them. <laughs> they run into these themes that deal with those times amazingly convenient well i keep yes. sidetracking you landrew so <laughs> the dark nature of the it's episode, a dark episode and and maybe what i just said too about how for me it's maybe a little bit too straightforward to have the mm-hmm. tos charm what are your thoughts on it no and when you mentioned earlier like you know a lot of people say this is their favorite episode and i had to stop and think i mean i don't even think i considered putting it on my like uh you know, top 10 marathon. Now it is a very episodes. famous episode, but that doesn't necessarily it's mean it's a very it's a famous episode, episode, but yeah. right. Uh, I mean, and, and for the marathon that Mike and I did that we were talking about doing it, it was specifically TOS so that you get a flavor of TOS. And while this is a, a good episode, it's not, it's not TOS. It doesn't have the, the, the TOS flavors, though it is very good science fiction. Yeah. Like like we said earlier, but but talking about the music, uh, it's very great. Everybody's got everything's got their own theme, and it's fantastic. But I was really struck by the points where there was no music. Like uh, there there are parts like when they're walking through the corridors of the ship uh, that's turned off, that uh, uh, the constellation. It's almost creepy because there's no music and they're just walking around. And so the speakers were broken in the corridor, Landry. <laughs> Oh, they couldn't play the yeah. theme music. <laughs> but I, I really liked that. I liked the uh, the sometimes no music is the best music to have in a scene. Yeah, and I like that. That yeah, the definitely. this episode is scored really, really well, yeah. and and it definitely helps with the dramatic tension. And it's not the that you get in Next Generation, <laughs> which is just hilarious to me sometimes i'd be like what's I, happening that's dramatic <laughs> you guys think this is dramatic i need that as my ringtone on my phone i love the the synthesizer imitation there landrew now i know that the d and the yamaha dx7 stands for drew yes it's true <laughs> i'm the voice modulator yeah. on the move well think about another show that is beautifully scored battlestar galactica the new battlestar galactica but how effective mm-hmm. it is when they have battle scenes where they do cut the music out and it's just silent. Which is, of course, oh, yeah. more real, more realistic to what it would be in space. But just from a visual and an auditory standpoint when you're watching the episode, it's much more powerful when you don't constantly have some kind of music going on that, that can then contrast with the score in other parts of the episode. 
I, I agree with that in general, although I would, as a counterexample, um, one of, in one of my favorite scenes in all of Star Trek is in the siege of AR 558 when they have that battle scene well, set yeah. to that yeah, yeah, yeah. music and that, that works really well. So I think sometimes it works total silence and sometimes yeah. it works with music like that. But that works, Daniel, because the music that they're playing is so out is of, it's so different from completely disconnected with what's going on yeah. with the action. Yes. Yeah, no, definitely. And that's kind of what I'm getting yeah, at, that it's, it's not so much the lack of music per se, I think, but yeah. the, the intelligent use of music or the lack thereof that might, that might, uh, you know, jar your, your expectations. Right. Definitely. Well, let's talk about one last topic here before we wrap up, and that's the remastering of this episode. And this is, I don't know if this episode has the most remastered visual effects, but it has to be right up there at the top of one of the, just a handful, because there are so many scenes in this episode, even in the original, a lot of visual effects. And they did a good job of pulling it off with, you know, really very little money to do it. But when they went back to remaster it, they really went all out to to have the space battle, to have the Enterprise making an attack run on the Doomsday Machine. One thing I was disappointed about was that I wanted to see the Doomsday Machine do a barrel roll. But the it problem is you wouldn't be able to tell because it's a cylinder. So maybe it was doing a barrel roll. We just didn't know. The entire time <laughs> it was doing a barrel roll. It's a spinning too fast to see. Perpetual barrel roll. <laughs> That's how it could deflect the phaser beams. That's right. So, uh, <laughs> the phaser beams were interesting in the visual remastering because they... I still got the feeling like... And I don't know if it was... Sometimes with the visual remastering, I, I feel like they do think... People complain about the Enterprise model that's used and how it's not detailed enough. And, and I agree... But at the same time, if you're remastering something from the 1960s and you want to update it, but you don't want to make it look like it's just a brand new show, maybe you don't want to go too far. You don't want to put too much detail. And when the the phaser beams hit the doomsday machine, they just don't really seem like they're connecting with the body of the machine Mm -hmm. exactly. Mm -hmm. It feels very like it's not quite done well enough. Yeah, I was thinking that, like, I guess, so this was actually the first time I had seen it start to finish with the remastered effects, and the two things that stuck out to me, one good, one bad, the the bad was exactly what you just said with the phasers. You have Sulu saying they're bouncing off, but you don't see them bouncing off. They're just kind of hazily maybe connecting, maybe not. And actually, if I remember correctly, I think in the original effects, they do kind of bounce off. Um, so I was, I thought it was weird that choice they made with that. On well, the other with the hand, visual, with, with the, the original visual effects, everything appears to be bouncing somewhere, right? Because it's so hazy oh, and true. kind of like a glow. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. That's a fair point. Um, but I think what really did work for me pretty well here, and I thought did sort of enhance the episode to some extent, was I thought the, the constellation looked really good. Yeah. The damage mm-hmm. was much more convincing looking and, and interesting, I think, than it was uh, in the original version. Yeah. I, the the constellation model, I mean, say what you will about the the Enterprise model. I think that once they got the nacelles fixed, which I did admit to Dave Rossi that I was one of those guys online who was complaining about the nacelle caps. So I'll, I'll admit it here too. Once they got all that fixed, I, I like the Enterprise model that they 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 use. But that constellation model with the with the the steel beams and everything, like yeah. 
cut the, you know, the yeah. cutout on the saucer and the damage nacelle. I think my favorite two shots are the, are the the close up of the saucer with the with the asteroid bouncing off of it. And I really like the shot. It's a short little shot, but it's once uh, Scotty gets the impulse engines back on, and the impulse engines like flicker on the outside of the ship, mm-hmm. and the ship kind of wobbles yeah. as it's like you know flying off into the distance. I, I really like that effect because it's just they had a you know three second shot that they could do, and so they did everything with it with a little flickering and. I think it's it's really well done. Yeah, I thought that was great too. Yeah, this was my first time seeing the remastered version, and I I was sitting on my couch last night, and I was like in awe. I'm like, this is amazing. Where did this come from? I do not remember this. It was it was beautiful. I really really liked it. Usually, the remastered episodes for me, like I wouldn't say I don't like them, but I don't think they make a huge difference in my mind in the quality of the episodes because it really is about you know the story and the writing but i think in this right. case i wouldn't say i would like never watch the original again but it, it definitely added a lot and was uh, a you know, big a big positive i think yeah i think it it helps to convey the danger of the story a lot better than the original for one thing the, the doomsday machine itself truly seems deadly in this episode, whereas in or in the remastered, whereas in the original, it's it's just another one of those objects that the Enterprise encounters, and you don't really get the sense of the power. You you get the sense of the power only by them describing what it has done to planets. But in the remastered, you truly do. I keep describing it today as a furnace because it really is like a giant furnace. The fire is going in there all the time, and you know you don't want to get too close to that. And you can picture it being large enough that it could just simply come along and envelop a planet. And I, I don't know if that's what it does, though. Does it shoot the beam at the planet, or does it actually no? It, it cuts it into pieces, yeah. it into pieces with the force again. beam. Yeah, but you can picture it as maybe a smaller yeah. planet, like poor little Pluto. It's now Plutoid. <laughs> it's not a planet anymore. Still a planet. It's still a right. planet in my. It's in still my a heart. planet. <laughs> it's still a planet, but. You could picture it with some planets maybe actually just kind of going across them and swallowing them right up in there, perhaps. Yeah. And it's, and then when it shoots the beam out as well, you're like, wow, that's some serious stuff. You know, that episode of ALF where he pulls out the, the blowtorch to burn the money when he's ALF the stupefying. It's like that on a much larger scale. It's very scary. It's very fiery. Yes. Well, it is, after all, right <laughs> puppets, out of hell. Puppets holding blowtorches <laughs> is always dangerous. <laughs> But but I, but I think the the remastered version here actually does benefit the story. Now, I'm someone who grew up watching TOS, and then later when it was on VHS, I had all the VHS tapes, and I watched them over and over. So the original of every episode is burned into my head. And when I watch the remastered sometimes, you know, it does feel different. But I, but I think it helps today's audience rediscover these stories, and that is important. And the original effects yep. are right there on the Blu-ray, mm-hmm. and that's the best part. Yep. All right. Well, let's close out here with our final thoughts and our ratings. So, Landrew, what are your final thoughts on the episode? What's your rating? The Doomsday Machine to me, uh, as I said earlier, it's not my favorite uh, original series episode. I wouldn't put it 
on on my lists. It's a good it's good science fiction. It's it's good to show off uh remastered and and the new effects to show uh you know the idea behind it. I mean there's a reason why every pitch for remastered was this episode. Darren Doctorman did this episode. You can find his original effects still online, I think. Uh, well, not his original effects, his redone effects. It, the the visuals are are always good. It's well acted. It's not. It, it it lacks a lot of the original series elements that that I like, and so for that, I'm gonna give it a seven out of ten wind socks. All right, giant space wind socks. Excellent. How about you, Suzanne? Um. The Doomsday Machine, while not even close to being in my top ten of of the original episode series, was a good story. I still think it rings true with the um, the H bomb in today's world. It's it's still something I can connect with. Um, Decker, a little crazy, but I understand his his motivation, his plight his wanting to have gone down with his ship and his crew. And I'm going to have to give it four out of five sushi hand rolls. <laughs> Great. How about you, Daniel? So for me, as I mentioned, this is my second favorite episode. And I, I, I see what you're saying, that it, it is um, you know different from your standard TOS episode. I do think that's true. Um, but for me, I, I think it does work as an excellent piece of science fiction. I think that the the drama does does work really well, and it's just um, you know an exciting and, and memorable story of you know, revenge uh, and and vengeance against this machine by Decker. So um, I'm going to give this one ten out of ten Vulcans who are not bluffing. Ooh, excellent! <laughs> I don't think we've ever had a non-bluffing Vulcan rating on the show before. <laughs> Certainly, its time has come. I think <laughs> it has. That's a good one. Well, for me, I think I've said pretty much everything that I, I want to say about the episode. It's it's a it's a classic TOS episode. I think anyone who is going to watch the original series, this is definitely if if I were if someone came to me and they said, I'm gonna watch the original series, what are the like the ten essential episodes that I should watch? Even though this isn't in my top ten favorite episodes. I would put this in that list of 10 episodes that these are the ones you need to watch in order to know what the original series is and what it's all about. And it's it's a good science fiction story. And I actually miss, I mean, we've had great writers throughout Star Trek's history, all throughout the franchise, but I do miss the original series actually bringing in people like Norman Spinrad to write these stories. And I think it's important, and I would li- I'd like to see a new series do that again of actually bring in people from the literary world, you know, science fiction giants, and have them write these stories. So I'm going to give this episode six copies. Well, let's make it seven copies of the best century, <laughs> the 20th century history book used at Starfleet Academy. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for joining us today, Suzanne and Landrew. Before you go, tell everyone where they can find you on the network and online. How about you, Suzanne? You can find me on the Twitter at Suzanne Abbott. 
And people could also find you on a number of different Trek of Film shows recently here on The Ready Room. And yeah. we also did that episode of Warp 5 where we talked about Archer's Lost Loves. Oh, don't get me started again. <laughs> How about you, Landrew? Well, they can find me on Twitter at 005, D-O-U-B-L-E-O-F-I-V-E. And they can find me on Standard Orbit with Mike, where we talk about TOS every week. And of course, on every TOS episode of The Ready Room, going back for at least two years now, right? Three years? I think I think this makes two years. Yeah, a good two years. All right. Very good. Well, thanks again for joining us today, guys. Thank no you. No problem. Well, Chris, it was uh, really fun discussing the Doomsday Machine with uh, with you and uh, Drew and Suzanne. And uh, it was really great to uh, be here on The Ready Room for the first time. Yeah, I'm glad you could join us today. It was really great. And I really enjoyed talking about the tractor beam with you in news because that's something that I really have no idea how it might work. It was really fun. And I just love speculating and and thinking about those kinds of things. It It was a lot of fun. But it's not the only thing that we've been talking about here on the network this week. So here, everyone, is a quick look at some other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.fm, Standard Orbit. And we go to the theater. I still remember this, even though I was only four. I still remember this. We go to the theater, and we're watching it. And then that Klingon dog shows up on screen. And I'm like, (laughs) what the frack is that? Get me out of here right now. Earl Grey. He would have excellent bedside manner. Here is a joke I know. Uh, uh, Would you like a Sumerian sunset? It is pretty. It will lift you from your terminal case of uh, gout. Ah, ah, choo! The ready room. I think that she is picturing him in the on naturel division of (laughs) synchronized work. Captain Fine. Which is not an Olympic sport, but they are considering it, <laughs> it as a demonstration <laughs> sport for the Rio de Janeiro games coming up. The Orb. Is it this thing like where women like bad boys or something? Does Dakot have a Harley that I don't know about? Uh, I think he must. Um, <laughs> and, I don't know. You know, he rides around on a Harley. Uh, he's he uh, just breaking hearts all over the place. To the journey! He says, yeah, they want me to read. They're saying it's mine if I want it, but I don't want to do it. And she, like, jumps out of her chair and, like, shakes him. She's like, what? Are you kidding? This is Star Trek. Are you kidding? You would be made for life. Commentary, Trek stars. I thought you were going to do a Brandon Braga voice. <laughs> it's uh, it's really hard to do a Brandon Braga voice. That's, that's pretty good. It's got to be, uh, you know, it's got to be kind of quiet. Literary Treks. Again, it was originally published as a scroll form and then later as a codex book, and now both in print and electronic form in the 24th century. And this particular edition of it has an introduction and afterward and modern commentary by a 24th century Klingon novelist named Karatak. Continuing mission. Goal was to try to get as much Trek content into people's hands and to let people explore the Trek universe with their own spaceship and build their own crew in the way they want, customize and design, and just, you know, to be in your own Star Trek world. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out all of these shows and find out what we're talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe. You'll find them in a wide variety of places, pretty much anywhere you get your podcasts. You're going to find Trek FM there. We are on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn. Windows Phone, Xbox, Zune. We're also on Spreaker. 
We're on Swell. We're also on SoundCloud now. Just search for Trek Dot Film and you'll find us. Search for the name of the show you want to listen to as well. We'll pop up. And also you can stream from our website and you can grab the RSS link as well and drop that into your favorite podcatcher. If you're over in iTunes, by the way, be sure to check out our artist page where you will find lots of our back content organized in some ways that make it a little easier for it to bubble up to the surface. We have almost a thousand episodes here on the network now. That includes lots of interviews, lots of discussions, and it's sometimes difficult to find those older episodes. So go check that out. The best way to get there is to type iTunes.com slash TrekFM into your browser, and that'll open it right up in your iTunes app straight to our artist page. And if you enjoy the shows, take a moment and leave us a star rating and a written review. We love to hear from you. And it also helps other Star Trek fans find the shows as they search for them in the iTunes store. We'd also love to hear your feedback on today's episode. Anything you want to share with us about the Doomsday Machine, about the search for Spock, and your memories of seeing that movie for the first time, or anything you want to discuss related to Star Trek, you can send us your feedback in a variety of ways. You can go to trek.film slash contact. There's a form there. Choose to send to a show and choose the ready room, and that will come to us by email. You can also go to our forums at trek.film slash forums. You can find us on Twitter. Our username is trek.film. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.film. We also have a community on Google Plus now. If you just search G Plus communities for trek.film, you'll find us there, and we'd love to talk to you on G Plus as well. Now, Daniel, when you're not over at Vasquez Rocks running around reenacting the fight scene from Arena, where can people find you? Well, Chris, uh, people can contact me at Daniel Hanlon, that's H-A-N-D-L-I-N, at gmail.com and talk about Star Trek or anything else that happens to cross your mind. Excellent. Very good. And hopefully people will be able to find you on more shows here in the future as well. Yep, I hope so. Well, if you'd like to find me, you can find me on Twitter. My username is C Brian Jones. That's the letter C and Brian with a Y. You can find me pretty much everywhere in social media under that same username, although Twitter is probably the best place to chat with me. That's uh, my favorite social media platform. And elsewhere on the network, you can find me on a lot of different shows. Matthew Rushing and I do literary treks together, where we talk Star Trek books and comics and we interview authors. Matthew and I also do The Orb together, which is all about Deep Space Nine. I do Warp 5 with different guests every single week. That's all about Enterprise. Continuing Mission is a show where I interview the people who make Star Trek fan films and independent series and games now as well. I actually just had Craig Bolin, who is the creative director and senior games designer at X-Cube Games on this past week to talk about Trexels, which is the really cool 8-bit game for iPhone and iPad. Coming soon to Android, by the way. I did find out that in the interview. So all of you who are waiting for that, it's on the way. Uh, Go check out that show as well. We had a great chat about the -the behind-the-scenes story of Trexels. And uh, then there's also Matterstream, which is about the world inspired by Star Trek. Those are interviews as well. That's an occasional show. And Hyper Channel, where I spend about 15 minutes with you every day, giving you some of my thoughts on news stories from the world of Star Trek. Before we let you go, I'd also like to remind you about our sponsor for today's show, Audible.com, the best source for audiobooks anywhere online. When you support Audible, you're supporting The Ready Room. Every time you try Audible, it covers our costs, almost covers our costs for one of our shows for one month for the hosting that we have to pay to get the shows out to you. So that's a great help for us, and you'll be getting something great in exchange 
an audiobook of your choice absolutely free. And then when you stick with Audible, you'll be getting great prices on the best selection of audiobooks every single month. And the way you do this is to go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm and just sign up for the trial. If at the end of the trial you decide not to stick with Audible, you get to keep that audiobook, so there's nothing to lose, which will really be helping us out. And trust me, if you love podcasts, you're going to love audiobooks and you're going to love Audible. So go over to audibletrial.com slash trekafilm, try it out today, and we really, really thank Audible for their support of The Ready Room and The Network. Well, Daniel, I've got to go. I'm going to wander off through the ship and try to find out where Chekhov and Uhura are, because I really missed them in this episode. Well, it's time to stick an overloading impulse engine in this one, because The Ready Room is done. Doomsday pants. Commodore Ahab's (laughs) giant space whale pants. (laughs) Cement windsock pants. No pants. Okay. (laughs) Suzanne's mic checks now are always someone with no pants. Oh, my goodness. That's right. What is it about women on this network and the complete inability to keep things clean? I know. It could be a skirt. It doesn't have to be pants. All right, maybe maybe that's well, it. We'll sure. save that for TNG week. We need a scant <laughs> check for our TNG shows. Uh, is, is that going to be the new rule to be on a TNG show? You've got to have a scant. Yeah, <laughs> like we used to do the Q mustache. Chief wow. Engineer Argyle's gin-soaked scant. <laughs> All right, they did have those season one episodes where they were wearing those. Shorts and what I love about the Pretty remastered perfect. TNG is that you can see a lot more people wearing scants that you couldn't see before because they were just kind of blurred into the background in the muddy SD picture. Some of them you don't want to see. That's true. <laughs> I worry about I try not to look at those people with scants. Like, I don't really, really want to see that. <laughs> that was a bad idea. 
That was, I think that was worse than the pastel colored uniform idea for the motion picture. <laughs> no. With the too much junk no, no, no. pants. The too much the junk pants are worse it. because yeah. the scants at least are in the background and you can't ignore them. The too much junk, you kind of like <laughs> have to watch the movie with your hand covering the bottom half of the screen. Right. <laughs> you just put a piece of a cardboard across the bottom half of the screen. Yeah. And then Depending watch the on who's picture. on the screen. <laughs> <laughs> See, she can't control herself. You're going to have to play this with a stinger. <laughs> Actually, yeah, this will make a good stinger. We can't lose this. <laughs> okay, here we go. I'll lead us into the show here. <laughs> 